Welcome to Bitchy History, the American history podcast that takes a lot of petty enjoyment at how horrified the Puritans would be to have a queer woman telling everyone their dirty little hypocritical secrets. Anyway, happy Pride, everyone! Well, here we are at episode 7 of Bitchy History, How Time Flies. You know, there are lots of bits of American history that have become weapons in the politicization of American history. But high on that list of topics are the settlers who arrived in the New World on the Mayflower in 1620. In other words, the Pilgrims. I'll fully admit that I have no idea what education about the Pilgrims looks like in elementary school these days, but I clearly remember my own days in elementary school, celebrating the first Thanksgiving with hats that had big belt buckles on them for some reason, creating cornucopias out of construction paper, and coloring in turkeys made by outlining our hand on a piece of paper. I went to a private school which was connected to the Baptist Church, so my education on this also focused a lot on how the Pilgrims came here for religious freedom to escape the oppressive British government. From what I've been told by others, that isn't far off from how they learned the history of the group in public school as well. If you've listened to this show for the past six episodes, you won't exactly be shocked when I tell you that the majority of this history is whitewashed crap. Our review of the Pilgrims is basically absolutely bunk, no better than that Thanksgiving pageant in the Adams Family Values movie. This year, we depict perhaps the most important day in our shared past, the first Thanksgiving! A day for maize the Native American word for corn, a terrific turkey dinner, and brotherhood. So, white meat and dark meat, take it away! No, they didn't wear unrelieved black clothing, I've never seen any record of big hats with gold belt buckles on them, and they didn't come to the New World for religious freedom at all. So who were the pilgrims, what did they believe, and why did they cross the ocean to settle in Plymouth? To really understand the situation, we have to rewind just a bit, approximately a hundred years to the Protestant Reformation in Europe. The Reformation was a major movement within Western Christianity in 16th century Europe that challenged the Catholic Church and papal authority. It arose from a perception that the Catholic Church was corrupt and abusive, but that's in Europe. In England, we'd see our religious schism come from a less principled and more self-serving issue. The Reformation couldn't have come at a better time for King Henry VIII. The Catholic Church wouldn't approve his divorce from Catherine of Aragon, and the Reformation is sweeping Europe, and Henry got a bright idea. Why don't I just start my own religion? Then I can grant myself a divorce. And yes, I am drastically simplifying this. This is an American history podcast, not a British history podcast. Anyway, with this, the Church of England, which will also be known as the Anglican Church, is formed, and they officially break England away from the Catholic Church in 1534 making Henry the head of the church. Technically, you could consider this part of the Reformation. I mean, it can't be coincidental that Henry got this idea only a decade after Martin Luther was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. But rather than being a split based on any actual theological issues of merit, it was more to suit Henry's own needs. As a result, the Church of England remained in practice very similar to the Roman Catholic Church in a lot of ways, which is where the problem with the Puritans in England begins. Puritans fell into two real groups. The regular Puritans, the ones who want to purify, hence the name, the Church of England from Catholic influences. Puritan 2.0, on the other hand, they're also known as the Separatists, and they feel the Church of England is beyond reform, utterly hopeless, and they just want a clean break from the whole system. They didn't necessarily want to burn the system down, though. Not at first. They just wanted to form their own churches, not necessarily worship the way the state told them to. Which, okay, fine, that makes sense. 
But they were real downers about everything, and they didn't want anyone having any fun. They were teetotalers. They wanted to outlaw non-religious activities like drinking and sports on Sundays. They didn't like dancing. They didn't like gambling. They didn't like the theater. Basically, they didn't like fun. Anything outside of pious religious practice was a problem for them, and the separatists were worse than most. The height of their influence and English annoyance with them would be a couple of decades after the pilgrims arrived in the New World, actually, because only a handful of separatists end up leaving England for the New World. And since this isn't a British history class, we'll leave the discussion of Cromwell's England for another time. Actually, we'll get back to it more when we talk about the American Revolution, for reasons. You'll understand when we get there. The Puritans followed the teachings of Martin Luther, reformer numero uno, and John Calvin, one of my least favorite religious leaders ever, of all time. I'm serious. I'm just letting you know that so you know that I have a bias here. Also, I can't help but tell anyone I ever speak to about how much I despise Calvin whenever he comes up in conversation, which happens a lot more than you'd think in my field for some reason. Puritans believed in two major principles. The Bible is the supreme authority, and the individual has a direct relationship with God. No priest or religious institution required. They also had a lot of core beliefs about the nature of humanity and God. Mankind is rooted in sin, thanks a lot, Eve, and there's no crime that humanity isn't capable of committing due to this. They believed in predestination, which is far too complex an idea to unpack in this podcast, but in short, it is the religious doctrine that all events have been willed by God, usually with reference to the eventual fate of the individual soul, which kind of goes along with the next belief, that God is the absolute sovereign. Nothing happens outside his knowledge or power. They believed in covenant theology, that there was a contract between God and his followers. This also governed the way they formed social relationships and civil ones. They also believe strongly in education, which is about the first positive thing I can really say about them, honestly. Education was a bulwark against Satan. Being literate allowed people to read the Bible, which meant they valued literacy for both men and women. So now that you understand who the Puritans were, we can begin to discuss what brought them to the New World. As I mentioned earlier, the Puritans were kind of buzzkills, but more importantly to the very territorial Church of England, they were refusing to attend their parish churches and instead setting up their own. The government began oppressing them and imposing fines on them because of this, which is objectively a pretty shitty thing to do from the perspective of our modern concepts of freedom of religion, which didn't really exist at this point in history. Except in one place, the Netherlands. So with the government making it increasingly clear that the Puritans weren't welcome, some of them decided to cut their losses and immigrate. They moved to the Netherlands, specifically the city of Leiden, which is about 25 miles south of Amsterdam. And coincidentally, also where I went to graduate school. They actually have a pilgrim museum there, if you're ever in Leiden. In the aftermath of the Dutch Revolt and Spanish Inquisition... Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! Ah, wow, sorry about that. Every time I say that phrase, I get this weird glitch in GarageBand. I'm working on it. Anyway, in the aftermath of the Dutch Revolt and the uh, regrettable religious genocide by the Spanish, the Dutch were a lot more tolerant of religious differences. Except for Catholics. They weren't really fond of Catholics. But the Puritans didn't like the Catholics either, so that worked out. After several years of living in the Netherlands, marrying, having children, and burying some of their leaders in St. Peter's Church in the city center, a few of them got so aggressively isolationist that living in a place where they were allowed to practice their religion wasn't good enough anymore. The Netherlands was just too tolerant, you see. They didn't just allow the Puritans to practice their religion in a largely Calvinist country, they also allowed Jews to practice their faith, 
and hold office for shame. The Union of Utrecht in 1579, which was kind of the birth certificate and informal constitution of the Dutch Republic, had guaranteed that each person shall remain free in his religion and that no one shall be investigated or persecuted because of his religion. And this was just too much for the Puritans to take. Some of the more extreme Puritans living there feared that their children were being influenced by this liberal culture and were becoming too Dutch, and that the Dutch toleration of all religious ideas would inevitably corrupt their faith. William Bradford, one of the governors of Plymouth Colony, wrote that the children were being drawn away by evil examples into extravagance and dangerous courses. So this small extremist sect of an already small extremist group decided that their best option would be to further isolate themselves by building a new colony where they could write their own rules on religious toleration, namely that the only religion they would tolerate was Puritanism. So Robert Cushman and John Carver are sent off to England to apply for a land patent. Their negotiations are delayed, but ultimately a patent is secured with the condition that this land patent did not constitute any official recognition of the Leiden group's religion by the king. There's a lot of negotiations and paperwork between the acquisition of the land grant and them actually leaving, but most of it's related to internal English and Dutch issues, which are ultimately not the point of this episode, so I'll skip it. The important thing is that the land patent is granted on June 9th, 1619, and after over a year of preparations and negotiations, the Mayflower and the Speedwell finally set sail for the New World on August 5th, 1620. They had further problems with the Speedwell, and before they reached Devon, it was decided that the ship wasn't actually seaworthy, and they had to transfer everyone to the Mayflower. This reduces the number of settlers from 120 to 102. It takes 66 days to make the crossing from England, and on November 9th, they finally sighted land, which was likely a great relief. The crossing had been an absolute nightmare. There had been a number of complications with their charter, and technically they arrived in the New World without one, which complicated a lot of things, namely the governing of the new colony. The Leiden congregants end up drafting a brief contract known as the Mayflower Compact, which promises cooperation among the settlers for the general good of the colony and to which we promise all due submission and obedience. It was ratified by a majority ruling with 41 adult male pilgrims signing for all 102 passengers. The Plymouth Colony would soon be followed by the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which is founded in 1628, around the areas of Salem and Boston. Around 20,000 people would migrate to this area in New England during the 1630s, most of them Puritan and governed by Puritan teachings. It was also the first slaveholding colony in New England and the first English chartered colony whose board of governors did not live in England. Instead, it was governed by locals. This independence made it very easy to ensure that only Puritans held these positions, which allowed the settlers to maintain a very strict hold on the religious practices of their community. And the religion was Puritanism. The Puritanical rule of law in the area would greatly contribute to something we'll talk about in a future episode, the New England witch trial craze. But it also meant that there was little to no tolerance for anyone with differing religious beliefs. Anglicans, Quakers, Baptists, everyone was consistently oppressed. And for all those people that seemed to think that the Puritans were the backbone of American ideology, John Winthrop, one of the governors in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, thought that democracy was the meanest and worst of all forms of government. So no democracy and no religious freedom. This is looking less and less like they inspired America, but more and more like they might get along great with a certain political party that thinks America should be like this. But enough about that. What you can take away from all of this strict religious rule is that the pilgrims were hypocrites. It wasn't that they were mad about the lack of religious freedom in England. They'd just been mad that it wasn't the Puritans making the theocratic rules for everyone. 
So when they arrived in the New World and could set up their own rule of law, it was very much freedom for me and not for thee. They were the only ones allowed to have freedom to worship the way they wanted. No other religious orders need apply. We can see this in how they treated any Puritan that questioned the established order or any non-Puritan who dared to speak publicly about their different religious beliefs. For the sake of time, we'll only go over a few of these just to give you the vibe of the Puritans towards quote-unquote heretics. We'll start with the Boston Martyrs, which is the title given by Quaker tradition to the four Quakers executed under Puritan rule. These were Marmaduke Stevenson and William Robinson in 1659, Mary Dyer in 1660, and William Ledra in 1661. Quakers had been arriving in the Massachusetts Bay Colony since the early 1650s, and the Puritans were horrified by these hippie religious types that were swanning in and sharing their views on religion and their wild ideas about abolition and gender equality. Massachusetts enacts their first ban on Quakers in 1656, but punishments ranging from imprisonment to whippings to mutilation were not enough to keep the Quakers down. So in 1658, the colony ordered all Quakers banished from their colony under penalty of death. Now, to be fair, these Quakers were definitely being disruptive, but if being obnoxious and disruptive in public is a hanging offense, the number of multi-level marketing scheme invitations I get on Facebook would drop off overnight to zero. These were not the peaceful, non-confrontational Quakers of today. They were aggressive proselytizers who were preaching about the end times and hellfire and damnation, which... Speaking from experience as someone raised in hellfire and damnation-style Baptist churches gets pretty annoying pretty fast, but the hanging still seems like an unnecessary escalation. And it wasn't just the Quakers that got into trouble with the authorities. Many times it was Puritans themselves who got themselves in deep trouble just for questioning the leadership. Two notable figures from this period who did just that were Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson. Roger Williams was a New England Puritan minister and theologian. He arrived in Boston in 1631 and immediately started making waves with some very un-Puritan pronouncements. He told the civil magistrates of Boston that they should not be punishing citizens for breach of the first table of the Ten Commandments, i.e., you know, those rules about idolatry, blasphemy, worshiping other gods, honoring the Sabbath, and he said that all individuals should be free to decide their own convictions about religion. He also started asking some really hard questions about the validity of the colonial land charters once he met the local native tribes, making the point that the colonial charters didn't actually purchase any of the land from the original inhabitants, and even calls King James a liar in a pamphlet he publishes in 1632, at which point no one, Puritan or not, really liked him. Between 1633 and 1635, Williams was brought up before the magistrates twice, and by October of 1635, he was being tried for sedition and heresy, that he was spreading diverse, new, and dangerous opinions. Come to think of it, Ron DeSantis would make a really good Puritan magistrate. Williams was banished in the middle of winter, and he ended up being offered shelter by the Wampanoag tribe for three months until spring came. The leader of the Wampanoag, Massasoit, would end up selling Williams' land near what's now Rumford, Rhode Island, where Williams would begin building a new settlement. That land ends up being a little bit too close to Plymouth Colony, however, and Williams would have to move once more, this time purchasing land from the Narragansett tribe, which he would name Providence Plantations. This would become Providence, Rhode Island, a haven for those of distressed conscience who did not agree with the authoritarian theocracy of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Williams established a democratic government where a far more American concept held sway. Separation of church and state. In his 1644, A Plea for Religious Liberty, Williams put it this way, God requireth not a uniformity of religion to be enacted and enforced in any civil state. 
which enforced uniformity sooner or later is the greatest occasion of civil war, ravishing of conscience, persecution of Christ Jesus and his servants, and of hypocrisy and destruction of millions of souls. Eh, that's more poetic than let people worship God how they want, you stupid theocratic fascists, but basically the same vibe. Around the same time Roger Williams was pissing off the leadership, Anne Hutchinson was beginning to do the same thing. Anne Hutchinson was a religious reformer who was so popular that she helped create a theological schism in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Hutchinson was inspired by the absolute grace teachings of Reverend John Cotton, who believed that salvation was not based on behavior, but through the choice of religious conversion, which he said infused the body with divine grace. Hutchinson began holding her own meetings in her home, preaching her own message. Then John Cotton left England, and Hutchinson felt led to follow him all the way to New England. Hutchinson and her husband and their 11 children, yes, 11, you heard that right, came to Boston in 1634, where she continued to hold meetings in her own home, which were so popular that she was soon hosting 60 or more people a week. Her theological interpretations began diverging more and more from the legalistic views found among the colony's ministers, and soon the ministers of the colony found out, and they were not at all pleased. They called on her to stop these meetings, believing that her unauthorized religious gatherings might confuse the faithful. Tension continued to grow, especially when Hutchinson began to organize dissent against the preaching of senior pastor John Wilson, whose theology she found especially disagreeable. She was disruptive during his sermons and occasionally organized her allies to simply get up and walk out every time he spoke. In 1636, she and her supporters were accused of heresy, and I could get into the specifics of that accusation, but honestly, you'd all fall asleep. Suffice to say that she was not following the quote-unquote rules, and she was a woman with opinions. She's brought to trial in November of 1637, where she's officially charged with slandering the ministers of the colony and troubling the peace of the commonwealth and churches through promoting divisive opinions and teachings. So like Williams, she was spreading diverse, new, and dangerous opinions. Unfortunately, the court had neglected to make sure they actually had any proof of this. Hutchinson had never spoken her views in public, and she'd certainly never written them down, and she basically refused to answer any questions in court the first day. However, in the end, she was a woman with opinions, and much like me, she couldn't contain them, and they eventually came boiling out of her. On the second day of court, she spoke. You have no power over my body, neither can you do me any harm, for I am in the hands of the eternal Jehovah, my Savior. I am at his appointment, and the bounds of my habitation are cast in heaven. No further do I esteem of any mortal man than creatures in his hand. I fear none but the great Jehovah, which hath foretold me of these things, and I do verily believe that he will deliver me out of your hands. Therefore, take heed how you proceed against me, for I know that, for this you go about to do to me, God will ruin you and your posterity and this whole state." This was considered both seditious and in contempt of court. She was ultimately called a heretic and an instrument of the devil and condemned to banishment by the court as being a woman not fit for our society. Roger Williams reached out and convinced Anne and her supporters to settle near his new colony at Rhode Island. Hutchinson, her children, and the others accompanying her traveled more than six days by foot in April snow to get from Boston to Roger Williams' settlement at Providence. Before we close out this section, I would also like to mention Mary Dyer once more, along with Anne. Both women suffered miscarriages or stillbirths at some point during their disagreements with the Puritan leadership. In both cases, the leadership was positively gleeful over this, just in case you didn't already hate them. 
The leaders classified the women's misfortune as the judgment of God. John Winthrop wrote, She brought forth not one, but thirty monstrous births or thereabouts. Then continued, See how the wisdom of God fitted this judgment to her sin every way. For look, as she had vented misshapen opinions, so she must bring forth deformed monsters. They also greatly celebrated her death, with Reverend Thomas Weld writing, The Lord heard our groans to heaven and freed us from our great and sore affliction. And Pastor Peter Bulkley wrote, Let her damned heresy and the just vengeance of God by which she perished terrify all her seduced followers from having any more to do with her. So not only were they cruel and petty theocrats, but the Puritans held a grudge. Not very Christian, if you ask me. But what do I know? I'm just a woman with a lot of opinions. I'd be strung up alongside Mary Dyer in seconds if I was stuck back in 1660. That's it for today. For those of you who are mad that I didn't cover the first Thanksgiving, I promise we are going to get there. But I really needed for you to understand the Puritans and their mindset before we get to the rest of the episodes dealing with their history in America. Thank you for listening to Bitchy History. On Thursday, we'll be back with a topic that I always really enjoy, the New England Witch Trials. We'll probably talk a bit about the European Witch Trials, too, because it's my show and I do what I want. But it will mostly be the New England Witch Trials. Also, as this is Pride Month, at some point this month, I will be teaming up with another creator to do an episode on the history of drag in America, and I am so excited for this. We aren't sure exactly when the episode will be happening, but you will get it before the month is out. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, and if you think they would enjoy it, please share it with your family and friends. Or even if you think they wouldn't enjoy it. Even bad attention is still attention. You can also join the podcast Discord, where you can ask questions and request topics for future episodes. You can also follow me on TikTok. I just broke 10,000 followers recently, but I'm always happy to have more. And you can contribute to my tip jar or subscribe to a monthly support fund for this podcast through Spotify. I have no teaching jobs this summer, which means I'm not getting paid. Yes, I am guilting you. Teachers are not paid enough for the crap we put up with. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here on Thursday for more bitchy history.